One of the one of the mistakes that is very easy to make when reading the Bible is the tendency to forget that the people in the Bible were real people just like you and me. They had hopes and fears and dreams and concerns and aspirations and disappointments just like you do and just like I do. They were not emotionless machines. They were real people. If we fail to keep that in mind, we can easily miss some valuable lessons from their lives and from their experiences recorded in the pages of Holy Scripture. For example, think with me about the life of the Apostle Peter. Most people know that Peter made some major mistakes in his life. In fact, what he is probably known for more than anything else is his vehement and repeated denials of the Lord Jesus when Jesus was on trial. In addition to that, he is also known for some other mistakes he made and some of the other ridiculous comments he made as a disciple of Jesus. On one occasion, after Jesus had revealed his upcoming crucifixion, Peter pulled Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine someone having the audacity to rebuke the Lord? To pull him aside and say, Jesus, let me tell you something. Let me give you some input here. That was Peter. He made a lot of mistakes, and he made a lot of poor choices with his words. But one thing you can say about Peter is that he never stopped growing and progressing in his Christian life. He had a lot of bumps in the road along the way, but he never stopped moving forward. Maybe that's why so many Christians feel like they can relate to Peter. They can identify with Peter. Most of us know what it's like to make mistakes and to do dumb things and to say stupid things in life. If you can relate to that, as I can, then I hope you'll also be like Peter in another way. I hope you'll also be like Peter in the sense that you never stop growing and maturing and passionately pursuing your walk with the Lord. Peter eventually became the man of God our Lord intended him to be. He developed into a faithful servant and leader in the first century church. The whole first part of the book of Acts is filled with Peter's ministry. In Acts chapter 2, he preached to the Jewish multitudes on the day of Pentecost. Thousands were converted. In Acts chapter 3, he healed the lame man. In Acts chapter 4, he confronted the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish supreme court. In Acts 5, he confronted Ananias and Sapphira for their hypocrisy. In Acts 8, he dealt with Simon the magician. In Acts 9, he raised Dorcas from the dead. In Acts 10, he took the gospel to the Gentiles. In Acts 11, he defended those actions before the Jewish believers who didn't understand that the gospel was to go to the Gentiles. So the whole first part of the book of Acts is filled with the words, the actions, the ministry of the Apostle Peter. He became what the Lord wanted him to become. He became strong and solid. He became a Petros, which was the name Jesus gave him, which means stone or rock. Peter became that. Near the end of his life, he wrote two letters. 
Both of them are powerful and both of them are extremely insightful. This morning we come to the end of our trek through the second one. Let's turn together one final time to 2 Peter chapter 3. Over near the end of the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 3. Please follow along as I read verses 14 through 18. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. If you have been with us through our study of this letter, then you know that Peter has addressed a number of very important issues in this letter already. For example, in the first part of chapter 1, he strongly exhorted his readers and us concerning the importance and priority of spiritual growth. He reminded us that it ought to be a priority in our lives. He sought to motivate us by mentioning the positive results of spiritual growth and the negative consequences of a lack of growth. That was the first issue he addressed in this letter. The second major issue he addressed was the importance of believing and trusting the apostolic testimony that has been set forth in the inspired Word of God. He assured his readers at the end of chapter 1 that we are not following cunningly devised fables by following the Lord Jesus Christ and the testimony about Him in the pages of Holy Scripture. Scripture is not the Word of men. It is the Word of God. That's the focus of the last part of chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, Peter gave a severe warning against and a scathing rebuke of false teachers in Christianity. He reminded us that false teachers have always been around and always will be around until Jesus returns. He warned that they do great damage with their false doctrine and with their ungodly behavior and with their ability to mislead people with deception. That is the focus of the entire second chapter. And I know some of you thought we would never get through that chapter. It is a dark chapter in this letter, but an extremely important chapter in the Word of God. Then in chapter 3, Peter reminded his readers and us that there will be scoffers and mockers who will make fun of us for believing that this world is going to end with the cataclysmic judgment of Jesus Christ in His second coming. They will say that we are juvenile in our perspective of life. We are juvenile in our perspective of the future. We will always be in the minority if we hold to what Scripture says about the second coming of Christ. 
Coming off that warning in the early verses of chapter 3, Peter assured his readers and us that the day of the Lord's wrath is coming. It is coming to this earth at some point, and it will be followed by the day of God, which is the time when there will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That glorious future should be our focus. That reality should grip us with an eternal perspective. It should practically impact the way we live our lives day to day. As Peter says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blemish. Just as Peter said in verse 12, and then again in verse 13, he repeats the exhortation here in verse 14 to look forward to these things. Look forward to them. The idea is that we ought to be excited about them, focused on them, riveted on them. God doesn't tell us about the future simply to feed our our idle speculation. He tells us about the future for the practical benefit it can have in our lives today. And that leads Peter to his closing thoughts in verses 15 through 18, which is our text for this morning. His theme in these final verses is the importance of not falling into error, not falling into sin, staying strong spiritually, being faithful until the end, and continuing to grow stronger in our walk with the Lord. That's why I titled this message in this text, Keep on growing. That's the thrust. Keep on growing. It's a fitting way for Peter to end this letter, and it's a fitting way to end his life in the sense that he modeled this very exhortation. He lived it. He kept on growing until the day he went to be with the Lord, which is what he wanted for his readers, and it is exactly what the Lord wants for us. So let's see and hear what the Lord said through the pen of Peter in these closing verses of this great letter. In verse 15, he says, and, he's continuing his thought from verse 14, he says, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. In the first part of this verse, Peter reiterates what he said back in verse 9 about our Lord being long-suffering. Do you remember verse 9 from just a couple weeks ago? In verse 9, Peter was explaining why Jesus had not yet returned to this earth in consuming judgment. The reason is, according to verse 9, because the Lord is long-suffering and patient, and he wants to give more opportunity for people to repent and believe the gospel. The Lord's heart for the lost prompts him to wait, to hold off judgment. That was Peter's explanation in verse 9, and he reminds us of it again here in this verse. Because we want so desperately, and this is not a bad thing, but because we want so desperately for the time to come when there are a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, We may wonder why it is taking so long for the Lord to bring it to pass. What's taking the Lord so long? We can be like the souls under the altar in Revelation 6-9 who cried out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge? 
How long are you going to put up, Lord, with what goes on in this world? How long? It's understandable that we want to see sin and evil judged. It's understandable that we want to see righteousness reign. It's understandable and appropriate that we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Those are all good desires. Those are all good prayers. But we need to keep in mind that the Lord's delay has a purpose. The long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, says Peter here in this verse. The long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. So, during this time of delay, we ought to pray for and work for the salvation of men, women, children. After all, that's the reason why the Lord is delaying His judgment. He's giving time for people to repent. Therefore, as we often say in a lot of different contexts, we need to use this time wisely. We have a limited amount of time. We don't know how long it is. It could be a few days, few weeks, few months, few years. Lots of years. But let's use this time to pray for and work for the salvation of men and women in our midst and around the world. This is so basic, but... But we often forget the basics in the hustle and bustle of life. So Peter reminds us of this foundational truth in life. This foundational truth in our own lives. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's the purpose of his patient delay. Then Peter adds another thought at the end of this 15th verse. He says, As also... Our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. This, along with the next verse, is a fascinating little section of Scripture. I say that because it reveals so much in such a brevity of words. So much is said here in a very brief space. For one thing, this This little section shows us Peter's love for and appreciation for the Apostle Paul. There was no competition between them as apostles. They they weren't vying for, for popularity or for prestige among people. There's no competition between them. They were co laborers. Peter calls Paul beloved, our beloved brother Paul. And remember, Remember that according to Galatians 2, Paul felt it necessary to rebuke Peter on an earlier occasion in life. When Peter was not really walking in line, Paul rebuked him. So this shows us Peter's maturity because his respect for Paul did not diminish after that event. And it probably even increased. He didn't say, well, who does does Paul think he is? rebuking me. I'm an apostle too. Who, who does he think he is? No. No. This, this, is, this shows Peter's respect for, appreciation for, love for Paul. That's a rare response of maturity. To love someone who loves you enough to rebuke you when needed. But that was Peter. This also shows us something else, this little phrase. This also shows us that Paul had already written his letters by this time and may have died. 
from the best we can tell, Paul's death was sometime just prior to when Peter wrote this letter. And if it wasn't just prior, it was shortly after Peter wrote this letter. Paul's letters were in circulation among Christians in the first century, and Peter's readers had received copies of them. We know that when uh, these inspired letters were written, that they were copied by people in the church and passed on to their friends and family members all around the various churches in various cities and villages in the first century. And Paul sa- or Peter says here, those letters which were in circulation revealed Paul's wisdom. That's an interesting way for Peter to say it. He's not denying the fact that what Paul wrote was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as we'll see in the very next verse. But Peter was simply acknowledging the human aspect of Scripture. He was saying, wow, Paul's letters really reveal his wisdom. This wisdom that God gave him. Paul's wisdom comes through in his letters. But but the content of his letters wasn't merely composed of Paul's thoughts. His letters weren't merely his own thoughts, his own opinions. And that comes out in the next verse. Verse 16, where he said, Peter says, As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. Now I want you to notice what Peter does here. It would be easy to miss it. It's a subtle point, but a powerful point. Notice that he refers to Paul's letters in verse 15. We just saw that. And at the end of this verse, he says this, very important phrase, also the rest of the Scriptures. See that? That clearly demonstrates that Peter recognized, and rightly so, Peter recognized Paul's letters as Scripture. Paul's letters were not merely letters. They were Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 14, 37, Paul said this, If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Paul understood that the things he wrote weren't merely his opinions or his thoughts or his musings. He realized that God the Holy Spirit was supernaturally governing his writing, and what he was writing was inspired Scripture, Holy Scripture. Peter affirms the same thing here in this verse. He places Paul's writings right there on the same plane, the same level as Scripture. But that's not all that Peter says in this verse. Remember I said there is much here in in, in a brevity of words. There's more. In the early part of this verse, Peter says, Paul's letters have some things hard to understand. That's encouraging, isn't it? I mean, think about it. It's encouraging to know that even Peter, an, an apostle, someone who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, who also wrote Holy Scripture, it's encouraging to know that even Peter sometimes found Paul's writings to be difficult to understand. You say, how's that encouraging? Well, misery loves company, right? I mean, we all find Paul's writings difficult at times. Even the Apostle Peter 
found some of Paul's writings difficult to understand. Specifically, Peter is referring to sections of Paul's letters that talk about future events. That's what the phrase, these things, he says here in this verse, he says in his letters, in which are some things hard to understand. In this context, the some things, or these things, speaking of them, these things at the beginning of this verse, is a reference to what Peter has just been talking about, namely future events. So some of Paul's teachings about the future are hard to understand. But, but please notice that Peter doesn't say that they are impossible to understand. He just says they're hard to understand, not impossible to understand. The reason why I want to stress this point is because some Christians believe that there's, there's really no reason to study predictive prophecy because it's impossible to understand anyway. Why waste your time is their attitude. You can't understand. It's so confusing. So why bother? That's not really true. That's not accurate. Some of it is hard to understand. But it's not impossible to understand. And God would not have revealed it to us if He didn't want us to know about it and study it and consider it and contemplate it. Much of this third chapter of 2 Peter is about predictive prophecy. And we cannot justify ignoring it just because it's not always easy to grasp. Certainly, we need to study future things with humility and not with prideful presumption that we're always right. But it's not acceptable to simply ignore it. We should approach the study of it with humility and reverence and great care so that we don't end up doing what Peter says here. What is that? Notice what he says. He says there are people who are untaught and unstable, and they end up twisting the Scripture to say what they want it to say. Sadly, that is more common than any of us realize. It's easy for any of us to do this, any one of us in this room. In fact, probably every one of us has done this at one time or another. But hopefully, we are conscious of it and aware of the possibility so that it provides some kind of protection in our lives. What I mean is, we ought to regularly evaluate how we are using Scripture, how we are interpreting Scripture. Are we twisting it to say what we want it to say? Or are we allowing it to say what it says? Are we letting Scripture say what it says? That's an extremely important question that we ought to pose to ourselves regularly. It's very easy for us to twist Scripture to support our preconceived ideas and notions, but that's the wrong way to approach God's Word. We shouldn't read into it our own thoughts, our own pet doctrines, our own, our own concepts. We should draw out of it what it is saying. When we read into Scripture, when we twist Scripture, the results are often detrimental, and as Peter says here, they can even be destructive. So he warns us not to twist Scripture, and he warns us that there are untaught, unstable people who do. And by the way, this is often the case with passages of Scripture about end times. People can come up with bizarre interpretations 
that simply have no basis whatsoever, no backing, no support, no data to demonstrate the authenticity of the interpretation, but undiscerning people can be confused and even sidetracked. Sometimes this is done unintentionally or accidentally, but the sad reality, beloved, is that oftentimes it's done intentionally. It is done by teachers or religious groups or preachers, done by them to confuse people and mislead people. Religious teachers and religious groups know, they know, that most people have not taken the time to do a systematic and theologically sound study of the book of Revelation or the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25 or other prophetic passages of Scripture. So, they know that most haven't taken the time to do that. So, religious teachers take advantage of that by using apocalyptic and difficult prophecies to confuse people and mislead them and manipulate them and even control them. I think about this often when, when on a regular basis I see in the paper or, or through some means of advertisement group coming in saying, special seminar on the book of Revelation, four nights only or Friday night, Saturday. And I know the group that's behind it and they don't tell who they are. But they come in and teach all sorts of bizarre and twisted things. And the people who attend those seminars often have no clue that what they're teaching is is out in left field. Just no idea. That's why Peter gives a warning in this verse and in the next verse. He says in verse 17, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, since you know this is the case, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. This is, interestingly, this is basically how Peter began his letter. He began by encouraging and exhorting his readers to grow so they wouldn't fall into sin, so they wouldn't fall into error. So he opened his letter this way and he closes it this way. It's obvious that this was something that was really on Peter's heart. This was a pressing concern for him. As a pastor, he had surely seen many genuine Christians fall into sin, fall into error, end up spiritually destitute. In fact, just take a moment to back up to chapter 1 as a reminder of what he said earlier at the beginning of his letter. Look at chapter 1. Here in chapter 1, Peter's primary focus is on believers and the importance of staying strong in the truth for the purpose of spiritual growth. He says in verses 3 and 4 of this opening chapter that the Lord has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The Lord has given us everything we need to be able to live a fruitful, godly life. He has given us a transformation within called the new birth. He has given us the resident Holy Spirit to strengthen us. He has given us exceedingly great and precious promises. He has given us deliverance from the corruption that is in the world. So we have all we need to live a life of godliness. And based on that, here in chapter 1, Peter exhorts us to move forward in growth in our Christian lives. That's the focus of verses 5 through 7 where Peter lists seven qualities that we need to develop in our lives. Virtue, knowledge, 
self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. These seven qualities are to be in our lives in abundance. Coming off that exhortation in verses 5 through 7, Peter explains their importance in verses 8 and 9. He explains the importance of spiritual growth from a positive and negative standpoint. He basically says this, Spiritual growth is important so we can be fruitful. That's verse 8. And spiritual growth is important so we don't become spiritually stagnant. That's verse 9. To say it another way, spiritual growth is important so we won't be useless. That's verse 8. And spiritual growth is important so we don't become spiritually blind. That's verse 9. Notice how he says this. He says in verse 8, he says, For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The things or qualities mentioned in this verse are those character traits Peter listed back in verses 5 through 7. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Those are the seven qualities Peter is referring to here in verse 8 when he says, if you possess these qualities, if you have these things in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective. The New King James Version has the word barren in this verse. Most other English translations have the word ineffective or useless. Obviously. Obviously. That is not what we want to be as Christians. Right? I mean... We, won't, we don't want to be barren, ineffective, useless. Think about this in the following manner. It may be a strange way for you to think about it, but look at it this way. From Satan's point of view, Satan, God's enemy and our enemy, from Satan's point of view, he doesn't want anyone to become a Christian. That's obvious. He doesn't want anyone to become a Christian. But if someone does become a Christian, He wants to do everything he can to make sure that Christian is useless or ineffective. Satan hates to see Christians whose lives are useful to the Lord and effective at touching other people's lives for the Lord. The tragedy of so many Christian lives, the the tragedy of so many Christians isn't that they live terribly immoral lives. Now, there are some Christians who do live that way, sadly. But the, the tragedy of so many isn't that they live terribly immoral lives. It's that they live insignificant lives. If they died, there would be no one who missed them, spiritually speaking. Because they don't touch other people for the Lord. They're not any kind of testimony for the Lord or impact for the Lord. That's not the way we ought to be as a Christian. On, on, in verse 9, the flip side to this, Peter says... For he who lacks these things. In other words, if you have these things, you'll be effective and fruitful. But he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten he was cleansed from his old sins. The person that Peter has in mind in this verse is the Christian who doesn't take seriously the exhortation in verse 5 to be very diligent about growing in spiritual character and relationship with Christ. If such a person continues long enough in that kind of spiritual condition, he can get to the point where he is spiritually blind and can actually experience spiritual memory loss. 
Peter says he can forget that he was cleansed from his old sins. It's possible for a genuine Christian to get spiritual amnesia. If you don't grow in your walk with Christ, and if you make choices that take you the wrong direction spiritually, you can get to the point where you are spiritually blind as a Christian. What a sad state for a child of God. And that is exactly what Peter warns about in our text in chapter 3 at the end of his letter. Go back there to the end. So Peter basically repeats that warning from chapter 1 here in chapter 3 by saying it another way in verse 17. He says, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness being led away with the error of the wicked. You can see Peter's tenderness and his warmth as he addresses his readers as beloved. He really cared for these people. These people were dear to him. He wanted the Lord's best in their lives. He didn't want them to be misled. He didn't want them to be confused. He didn't want them to fall from their steadfastness. His concern was twofold. He didn't want them to be, to be misled doctrinally, and he didn't want them to be led astray spiritually. You see, both are a real potential for the child of God. We can be led astray by inaccurate teaching, and we can be led astray in our lives into spiritually damaging choices or practices. We've all in this room seen both. We've seen Christians who make poor choices, and they become... Uh, they become enslaved to sin in, a, in, in their lives spiritually. We've seen Christians just this week. I heard a, the sad story of a, a dear sister in Christ who's, who's gone off the deep end doctrinally, not morally, but doctrinally, embraced aberrant theology, horrible doctrine. We can, we can be led astray by inaccurate teaching. We can be led astray in our lives into spiritually damaging choices or practices. Both are a real potential for Christians, and don't you dare believe otherwise. Don't you dare believe that all genuine Christians are immune from falling into sin or immune from embracing aberrant views of doctrine. There is no guarantee in Scripture that we as Christians will automatically be saved from falling into sin or saved from embracing error. On the contrary, because that is such a real and distinct possibility for every child of God, Scripture is, is full of warnings to us just like this one. Scripture is full of such warnings. And Peter says here, to be forewarned ought to be forearmed. Realize that error will be prevalent and temptations will be numerous. So keep up your guard. Maintain diligence, vigilance. But don't only concentrate on the defensive side of things. Move forward on the offensive side of things. That's the last verse in this great letter. Verse 18. But in contrast to being careful about the negative, the de being defense, defensive in the good sense of that term, on the flip side of that coin, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. What a way for Peter to end this letter. 
This was basically the theme verse of his life. He continued to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the result was that his life did indeed bring great glory to his Savior. And that's what he exhorts of us here in the 21st century. Peter began, as we saw just a moment ago, he began his letter by urging growth and maturity. Verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1 are some of the most passionate verses in all the New Testament on the importance and priority of spiritual growth. Peter knew full well that pursuing Christian maturity and a deepening knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ will lead to doctrinal stability and prevent a Christian from being led astray. And that's what Peter wanted for his readers, just as that's what our Lord wants for us. You could justifiably say that this verse is the theme of this letter. This is it. How, how do you capsulize, how do you summarize these three great chapters called Second Peter? You summarize them this way. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is possible that Peter said grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and knowledge because he was emphasizing the two aspects of the Christian life. The Christian life, you see, is composed of doctrine and duty. Or to say it another way, it's composed of theology and practice. Both are equally important. So Peter exhorts us to grow in grace which could refer to the way we live. And he exhorts us to grow in knowledge, which could refer to what we believe. We should grow in both. We should grow in both. A Christian who only grows in knowledge, but not in spiritual life, can easily become arrogant and harsh, filled with knowledge, but not a tender heart. On the other hand, a Christian who only grows in in Christian living but not in doctrine, leaves himself open to error and false teaching. That's why it's important to emphasize that both are equally important. We are to grow in our living out of spiritual truth, and we are to grow in our understanding of biblical doctrine. And when we do both, we maximize our opportunity to bring glory to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as the last phrase in this verse says. That should be, beloved, that should be the passionate longing of our hearts to bring glory to the one whom we love and who has loved us so faithful. The last phrase of this letter says, to him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. That was Peter's final comment to affirm the deity of the Lord Jesus. Now and forever. It will be forever because he is the eternal one. It was Peter's final comment to affirm the deity of the Lord Jesus whom he loved so passionately. It was the Apostle Peter who said this of the Lord Jesus. And this applies to you and it applies to me. He says, Whom not having seen, that is, we've never seen Jesus, whom not having seen, yet we love him, And we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Let me ask you as we close 2 Peter, 
Does that statement honestly describe you? Does that statement honestly describe you? Speaking of the Lord Jesus, whom not having seen, yet we love him and we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That's the way Peter felt about the Lord Jesus, though he did get to see him. It should describe the way we feel about the Lord Jesus, and one day we'll get to see him. Let's bow as we close. As we bow our heads in closing this morning, not only the close of the message, the close of the service, but the close of this series through Second Peter. And I ask you to take just a moment to do some heart searching and some evaluation in your life to see, do you really love the Lord Jesus with that kind of passion, with joy inexpressible and full of glory? Is the passionate longing of your heart to bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ? As Peter says here at the end of this verse, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ enables us to bring him glory both now and forever. Child of God, is your life marked by spiritual growth? I'm not talking about being arrogant or prideful. Oh, yes, I'm really growing. But just in, in all honesty, is your life marked by spiritual growth? Are you growing in your walk with Christ? That is the question that this letter and this closing verse forces us to ask. Are we really continuing to grow in Christ until the day he calls us home? And if you're here today without a relationship to Jesus Christ, you obviously can't be growing in your relationship to him. You need to start a relationship. You need to begin by humbling yourself before him, repenting of your sin, letting go of whatever is holding you back, and call out to Jesus Christ in simple childlike faith. Say, Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I want to begin walking with you. I want to be growing in you. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Grant me your salvation. And I want to begin growing to bring you honor and glory. And you don't have to say it that way. But whatever is in your heart, whatever the Spirit of God has stirred in your heart, lift that to the Lord. Call out to Him. Because Scripture says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Father, thank you for our fascinating trek through this great letter of Scripture called 2 Peter. Thank you for your grace in Peter's life as we look back to see how you molded him and formed him and shaped him made him into a man of God. And it just brings so much encouragement and hope to us to see with all of our sins and weaknesses and shortcomings as Peter had, we can become what you want us to become. May that be our longing. May that be our passion to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in closing, we pray for anyone who's gathered here with us who does not know your son, Jesus Christ, May this be the day that that man or woman or young person surrenders to Jesus Christ and comes to know him as Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.